All right, so we've been looking at chapter 13 of Deuteronomy for three weeks. We've had a couple of breaks. Uh, go on with some different things that have happened. Uh, the, the Thanksgiving season, open forum meeting, those types of things. But again, I want to reiterate to you, this is divided up into three situations. It all pertains to the same attitude of which we are to address sin. And that is, and when I say we, I don't want to misconstrue the idea that we're Israel or anything like that. That is not my goal here. Uh, but the idea is, is handling sin seriously. Handling sin as God would handle sin. Now remember, regardless if it's Israel, regardless if it's the church, God cares first and foremost about the purity of the body. Okay? I would hope that in any altercation that we got over Christianity, that our first and foremost uh, desire would be doctrinal purity with an attitude of love It's going to carry it. Okay? And I understand some people just want to push your buttons to the point where they're trying to make you unloving as a further justification as to why you're wrong in what you say. Uh, we have nothing to prove. It's all already been done or already proved for us, and I think that hopefully would be a comfort. But let me give you the three divisions again. Situation number one stretches from chapter or chapter thirteen, verses one through five. Okay, and if you remember in the original Hebrew of this text, chapter twelve, verse thirty-two is actually verse one of chapter thirteen. Does everybody remember that? It's important that you know that, and the reason is is because chapter twelve, verse thirty-two. And the very last verse, chapter 3, verse 18, and what we have, actually make up a pericope, okay? Uh, the pericope is going to be a unit of thought that is supposed to be taken as a whole in and of itself uh, to be conveyed. And so, therefore, it's going to have certain bookends that are going to give you uh, an understanding of that. Uh, it's a section of Scripture that is be under, understood as, as being able to stand on its own. If you remember in the first situation, what we dealt with is we're dealing with false prophets, we're dealing with people who actually have miraculous abilities and can actually bring a sign to pass that they predict, and yet what exposes them is their words. The thing you're supposed to pay attention to is their words. When somebody like that came up in the midst of Israel, they were to be put to death. If you move on to chapter 13, verse 6, this is situation number two. And this gets a little bit more dicey when we talk about a personal level. It makes family reunions very awkward. Uh, chapter 13, verses 6 through 11, deals with the idea of, notice verse 6, your brother, your mother's son, your son or daughter, the wife you cherish, or your friend. They come along and they are trying to lead you astray from Yahweh Elohim. And notice how they do that with their words. Come, let us serve other gods of which we have not known. Why do you think it is? And I want you to notice something very interesting. Chapter 3, or sorry, uh, verse 2 at the very end, you have a parenthetical segment that says, Whom you have not known. If you notice in verse 6, a parenthetical segment that says, Whom neither you nor your fathers have known. And we're also going to see when it branches down into verse 12, uh, let me see here, verse 13. And notice the parenthetical seg segment, Whom you have not known. Why is it that when Moses is communicating to these people about false prophets trying to lead them away, why does he include this idea of whom you have not known? It's a reminder. It's a reminder of what? The, the God of your fathers brought, you, brought them out of, Israel, out of Egypt, and you don't know this other one. Exactly. This is the God you know. Or this is the God that has proved himself to you. 
In fact, it's very interesting. You'll notice that a lot of times in Scripture, up until the time of the Exodus, you find that God is often referring to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes? But then we have another amazing event that takes place in the Exodus. I am the God who led you out of Egypt, who delivered you out of Egypt. Then you have that as a marker of how they know him. In fact, let me let me show you this real real quick, just a real quick thing. Put your finger here and turn to Romans 9. Let's look at Romans 9 real quick. Because Paul uses this same type of justification to prove a point. Chapter 9 of Romans, verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. And notice the word separated is in italics. It's not there. It's probably good for you to just kind of put a little line through that word. You know that the, the translators put it there, but it's really not necessary in the situation. It says, Separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now watch this. Who are Israelites, and look what he does. To whom belong, number one, the adoption of sons, number two, the glory, number three, the covenants, number four, the giving of the law, number five, the temple service, number six, the promises, number seven, verse five, whose are the Father, and from who is the Christ according to the flesh, number eight, who is overall, God bless forever, amen. What is he telling you there? This is the God they know. This is the God that they are aware of, they have experience with, they've been given special revelation of. Things have been revealed to Israel that have not been revealed to anyone else. So the idea, and this is what makes the whole idea of adultery foreign. This is a woman that you know, so why would you go to another? Now the bitter husband would say, it's because I know the woman that I know that I went to the other, right? And we would say, that is no excuse for your sin. You are a fool. Why would you have such investment in someone else and you would settle for something that may seem foreign or strange or something like that? It makes no sense. And it makes no sense in this because what they're actually talking about is spiritual adultery. Remember, anytime that you're talking about adultery, you're talking about spiritual adultery. Okay? It is, it is the equivalent of sexual unfaithfulness in a relationship with God. It is intimacy with another who, is, who has no concern or care for you. So, it says here, uh, let's see, we deal with the whole idea of brother, mother, sons, daughters, wife, your friend, uh, if they try to lead you astray. The penalty is still death, verse 10, so you shall stone him to death. And then, uh, notice it says in verse 11, then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. It's one thing to have somebody come in as a prophet, say they're speaking for God, predict a miracle to happen, perform the miracle or the occurrence to come about as it is. Obviously, they have some sort of gift, whether it be from Satan or, or from God, but they're using it for satanic purposes. And yet with their words, they want to lead you straight. You kill him, it's a done deal. It's another thing to have to look over at your son and say, you've gotten involved in stuff you should have had no part in, and now you're trying to lead the family astray in this. You have to take decisive action. Then all the community of Israel fears. Now, here's a situation that seems a little bit more long distance. You move into chapter 13, verse 12. From 12 to 16 is situation number three. And this deals with the accountability that was to be had amongst the community of Israel. Just because you lived in one city towards the north doesn't mean that you disregarded the murmurings that you heard from some cities in the south, okay? So notice it says, if you hear of one of your cities 
which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city. Now notice that the word seduce is used. It's also used in verse 10 with situation number two. Does everybody see that? And the idea of this seduction here uh, is the idea of, of trying to woo you away, trying to entice you to unfaithfulness in, in, in this matter. Notice uh, it says here, let's see, da, 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 some worthless men. Everybody see the word worthless. Anybody got a different translation besides either the NASB or the ESV? What verse? Uh, verse, verse, tw- verse 13, some worthless men. Wicked. Some wicked Corrupt. men. Corrupt. Corrupt men. Troublemakers. Troublemakers. That's a good one. Does anybody have the phrase sons of Belial? Anybody have that in their translation? The literal translation of this word here, worthless, is sons of Belial. Now, Belial was also another word that was used, if I remember correctly, for Baal, for Baal worship, B-A-A-L, or Baal worship, however you want to say that, but false god worship. In other words, they're coming from a crux of the occult to begin with. And the idea here is the fact that they're worthless, um, that they're misleading, that they're deceitful, uh, that they are off course. Uh, that they are uh, not in alignment with anything that God would want. And here's what's interesting. How do you tell a wicked person? Have you ever thought about that? That person's wicked. How do you know to make that claim? In fact, C.S. Lewis uses this argument for his argument for how an atheist knows that God exists. Curses What's that? He curses him when something goes wrong. He curses whenever something goes wrong. So you bring God's name up. There's just something about blaspheming him. That would be one way to look at it. But how do you know to designate somebody as a wicked or a worthless person? If I said, good grief, Amy Jance is a worthless person. You know, you say, good grief, I can't believe you called Amy a worthless person. Yeah, but why? How in the world could I make such a claim? How in the world could Moses sit here and say, if worthless men come amongst you and start to lead people astray and seduce you to false gods, what qualifies them as worthless? I'd say basically by what they say. By what they say. Their actions. Their actions. actions? But that still doesn't tell me how I know they're worthless, how they're wicked. Judge good from bad. Ah, Because you're able to sit here and take something that's worthless or wicked and you have to compare and contrast it with something that is good, holy, perfect, awesome, enlightening, however you want to say that. See, we sit here and say, well, it's by their words and I'm not going to say that's wrong. But let's be honest. There's a lot of people that have told us stupid stuff that we went along with, right? That's called college, right? (laughs) Let's be honest. There's a lot of people that have told us silly stuff that we bought into and then later on we go good grief what in the world was I thinking and the thing was you weren't but what it did was it appealed to something in us it appeased the flesh we thought we were going to get financial gain on the other side of it and therefore that's the direction we decided to go with it how do you weigh out something that's worthless because you have to compare it and contrast it to what you know is good notice that for an atheist to sit here and declare that something is good or beneficial to them And if it matches up with what Scripture has to say of which God has made good or beneficial, what you have is someone who cannot carry a consistent argument. They have to testify that someone else has set the standard for what is declared right and wrong. So notice, what would the standard be against this? What's what's the thing that leads them away? Notice it's not the miracles, it's their what? Their words. So their words 
wickedness, worthless, sons of Belial, troublesome, would be compared with what? God's holy, perfect, and righteous word. See, this is the reason why we sometimes read through Deuteronomy like, keep my statutes and commandments. Keep my statutes and commandments. Keep my statutes and commandments. And we're like, good grief. Do they not get it? No, they didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. We can see from their sinfulness and their waywardness. Why does Moses keep saying it? Because he's constantly drawing attention to what is truth. What is truth? God is truth. God dictates truth. And so it's the measurement that you weigh it against. Notice he says, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city. Now, this is a whole city of people. Surely a whole city of people have never been led astray, right? Everybody just had Madison flash in your mind. Surely it wasn't Portage, you know? But notice what it says here. They seduce the inhabitants of your city. And here's what they say. Let us go and serve other gods. Same message, right? Same message with the prophet who had something come true. Same message with the family member or friend who sought to lead you astray. Same message. With some guys who come together to lead a whole city in a wrong direction. And notice G-O-D-S, lowercase. What are we talking about? We're talking about demons. Verse 14. Then you shall come in and whack them on the head. Doesn't say that, does it? No, look what it says. And notice how careful Moses is about this. You shall investigate and search out and inquire Thoroughly. In other words, that word thoroughly there means you're to deal well with the situation. You are to leave no stone unturned. You, as, as someone who is outside of the city and unseduced from the activity that's going on in the city, you have a responsibility to come into the city and to line up sufficient evidence because you're getting ready to accuse an entire people group that live together that they're all doing wrong. Have you ever noticed that you can persist in wrong if you have strength in numbers? I mean, let's be honest. Isn't that why heroin addicts get together? You can find people who are addicted to drugs that have virtually nothing to do in their walks or way of life. They all listen to different music. They all work at different places. They all hang out with different social groups of people. Some of them came from good families. Some of them came from bad families. Some of them have experienced abuse. Some of them have been handed everything with a silver spoon. But what's the one thing that unites them? Heroin. Wrong. We can all sin together because we all feel better about our sin. So notice, you've got to have a sufficient case laid out because you are getting ready to accuse an entire city of people. Portage has about 11,000 people. Can you imagine bringing everybody to trial? Because they were all led astray by a few people chasing after lower G gods. You're all under demonic activity. You think that's going to stand out well? You think they're going to start up a riot and come against you and try to destroy you? You think that's possible? Possible. Let's give an example of this. Turn to Acts 7. Let's find where the rubber meets the road. Acts chapter 7, and let's start in verse 51. What is this chapter? (laughs) We know it by four little words, don't we? What is it? The stoning of Stephen, right? That's how we all know it. The stoning of Stephen. How come we don't call it the words of Stephen? 
Because that's not the action that happens, is it? That's not the thing that is so provocative that takes place in the situation. But here's the thing. Stephen was an incredible Jewish historian. He goes through and he lines out a case that is fantastic about how God has loved and worked with his people Israel. But then he comes to a very interesting conclusion in verse 51 as he's talking to Pharisees, the know-it-alls of the know-it-alls who govern over the Jewish people, okay? They were the answer in their, in their culture and time. Verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but this chapter is not found in how to win people and influence people. (laughs) This is not in Stephen Covey's book, okay? What in the world is he thinking here? Anybody know? Tell you what he's thinking. He's thinking truthfully. He is telling people the truth and he is bringing a hard case accusation. He has the facts. History tells the story against these people. And he is calling them to recognize their hardness of heart, their dullness of ears, and to repent because they slayed the Christ just as their father slayed his servants. Everybody see this? It's a huge murder accusation. Laverne, what you got? You're itchy back there. I can see. Um, uncircumcised heart. Yeah. How does that relate to circumcision? Uh, it's, the, it's the idea of you have the foreskin of your heart covering it. Oh. It's the idea of you have a covering over your heart. Uh, it has not been uh, cut, pulled back. It's not been revealed, the tenderness that is on the other side of it Same is the, the idea. Same with the ears, yes, yes. It's it's the idea. We would, we would say it this way, and it's probably translated in some translations as you become hard-hearted in the situation. Uh, they And I know it seems kind of weird for us in the, in the strange age that we live in the idea, but, but with the whole idea of trying to paint a picture of circumcision, you have a covering over your heart. You have a covering over your ears is the idea. You refuse to listen. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, right? Now imagine, think about why you need to do all your investigative evidence as an Israelite who has heard of another city being led astray and creating a a firm case that you investigate thoroughly that needs to be brought to the people. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Anybody know what that's called? Well, yeah, but (laughs) conviction. They experienced conviction. And now here's the thing. You have one of two ways you can respond to conviction. You can either harden yourself against conviction or you can soften yourself against conviction and humble yourself. Okay? Now watch. They were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's interesting because everywhere else you see after the ascension, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Notice that Jesus is standing in this instance. Okay? 
to watch this. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later becomes Paul we know of. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out, with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Who else said that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, yeah. No doubt taking his cues from that. Now here's what's amazing. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Now Stephen, stop upsetting the government. That wasn't the issue, was it? The issue was truth. Truth. We talk about there are hills to die on. You have to choose your hills well. I tell you, the hill to die on is truth. We don't need to. What's that? Golgotha. Golgotha, yeah. That's the hill to die on. The hill to die on is whether or not it's true. And that's why situations like whether or not men can have beards, which seemed to be a big problem in the 70s amongst, amongst evangelical leaders, believe it or not, uh, or how long the, the hemline was on a skirt in that time or whatever, those become crazy pivotal issues uh, that the churches split over that had nothing to do with anything that Scripture ever mandated, while the major issues were being thrown out the, the, out the window. We have a tendency to uh, absolutize the relatives and relativize the absolutes. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. Notice here, when truth was spoken, how do a people handle truth? They kill you. That's how it hand, happens. And so notice, God is saying, you need to have done your due diligence in having this against them because it could get dicey and you're going to have to make a decisive issue where you're going to have to take their life. Before you take the life of a city full of people, you better have it down. Notice in Stephen's situation, it goes the wrong way. In this situation, it goes the way that God has, has commanded it as his judgment. Go back to chapter 13, verse 14. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it is true, notice that, if the matter is proven to be true. And why is that? Because they heard about it, right? They heard about it through the grapevine. The only way that it wasn't clarified as gossip is that it ended up being true. But notice they had to take the time to investigate the situation. If it is true, and the matter established, and that word there means fixed or firm, or to confirm it for sure. There's not a shadow of a doubt involved in it whatsoever. It says that this abomination has been done among you. What's the word abomination mean? Anybody remember? Detestable. Detestable. Horrible. That's the idea. Something that absolutely makes the stomach of God sick. It makes him nauseous. It's a horrible, horrible thing to be involved in. Look what it says. Then you shall gather, or sorry, verse 15. Then you shall strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. They were to be self-governing and self-disciplining. And look what it says. See the word utterly destroying? Everybody see that? That's the Hebrew word harem. Harem. We would, we would, it's, it's the way that it's spelled to transliterate from the Hebrew, is C-H-A-R-E-M. And it sounds like that ch sound uh, whenever you would read it or look at it that way, but it's actually pronounced harem, and you give it that hard guttural at the beginning. And the idea is annihilation. Complete wiping out. Wiping them off the face of the earth. No remnant left. Exterminate. Why did they kill the cattle, too? 
Uh, we're going to look at that. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, give me just a second here. So, utterly destroying, harem, annihilating them, and all that is that is in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. <clears throat> Why are there cattle? What does a false god want that tries to falsify Yahweh God? Worship and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so what would you have devoted your cattle to? Sacrifice of a false god. Now they've been defiled. So what do you do? They're no good. I mean, wasn't this kind of the reasoning of Saul's people whenever they went? Uh, Was it against the people? The Oh gosh, I can't remember. 1 Samuel 23, I think it is. I can't remember. But when they were called to go against the people, and he listened to the voice of the people instead of utterly destroying everything. But we wanted to save them. We kept the cows. These are good burgers. (laughs) We need milk. Right? They were so nice. And and they saved them to sacrifice to God. Yeah, yeah. Holy reasons. But God, the whole reason why we disobeyed you is so we could worship you more. How's that go over with him? See, he doesn't care about our actions so much as he cares about us heeding his words. If we heed his words and take them seriously, the action follows. It becomes a non-negotiable thing about whether you're going to vacillate on the situation. You don't have to worry about that. So notice, why would you kill the cattle? You kill the cattle because probably they'd already been devoted to sacrifice to false gods. But it even gets more interesting. Laverne, it's an excellent point you brought up. Notice what it says after that. Verse 16, Then you shall gather all its booty, everything that's valuable, into the middle of of its open square, and you will burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, and it shall be a ruin forever. You shall bring it in a heap, and you will set it all on fire. And remember, with a burnt offering, a burnt offering was a fire that burned continually both day and night. You watched it for 24 hours and you burned it as sacrifice to the Lord. And if you remember, where did we first see that idea? That's what makes the whole, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering to me. And if we gloss over the idea of what a burnt offering is, we miss how excruciating of a thing God is calling Abraham to do. Notice here, it is an enactment of justice. Now, why do you bring everything that's valuable and you burn it all and it becomes a heap? Notice that the wording is, a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Why? The testimony to the others to not do the same. Notice that. It's a testimony of what citywide sin should be met with. And when they sinned, what was the problem of the people that currently resided in the land? Why was Israel coming in and removing them out of it? It wasn't just because the land was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a very big thing. But why is it that the people got to go? House cleaning. House cleaning. It was time to clean house. Because they had so defiled the land, Israel was going to be used as the execution tool of God to bring judgment upon these people. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the people were personally responsible, knowledgeable of what God expected of them, and they were in direct defiance for a period of time. God let them go on for so long, he probably brought warning to them. We don't know for sure, but he probably brought some kind of warning, and when they did not listen to the warning, he brought judgment. So notice, you burn it all. You burn this entire city to the ground. Now remember, this isn't somebody like separate from Israel. But this is also everything they were commanded to do to the Canaanites when they come into the land, yes? 
He's talking about a scenario of when you get settled and all the Canaanites are wiped out and these are your own kin. They come from one of the 12 tribes. You're directly related in some form or fashion to these people. You are to go in and you are not to treat them with any eye of mercy if they have walked away from me. You are to investigate. You're to create a case. You are to kill them. You are to kill their cattle. And you are to burn everything. And you are to leave that as a smoldering picture of sin. Now here's what's interesting. Does everybody remember uh, Achan? And they went into Ai. Remember the second city? They, they conquered Jericho first. And what was Achan's problem? He kept false gods from there and he buried them in his tent. And they couldn't figure out why they're not getting victory at I. Lord, we're doing everything you said. No, you're not. You've got sin in your camp. We always hear about sin in the camp, sin in the camp. The idea of sin in the camp makes for real good preaching. But what's really going on there? What's really taking place in the situation? He had so defiled the situation that he hindered God's blessing and his protection and the Lord being the warrior God to fight for them in these situations that he had already promised them victory. What was victory contingent upon? Faithfulness. Everybody see how that preaches? Victory is contingent upon faithfulness. It's no different in the Christian life. Unless we're willing to decisively deal with sin and confess it before the Lord, God will not give us victory. Why? Because we love our sin more than what he has for us. Why is it that they pulled all the valuable stuff together and burned it all? Here's the reason why. Because God is the one who sustained them, not whether or not they had cash in the bank. So, I mean, I think there's also probably the issue of demonic attachment. Absolutely. To those physical things that you can't get rid of any other way other than to destroy them by fire. Absolutely. In fact, notice, notice think with me timeline-wise what we're talking about. We're talking about a situation that would transpire here after this conquest of the land had already taken care of and all the false influences have already been wiped out. Yes? So who in the world were these people that showed up and started worshiping these false gods? Well, because demons are living and active yet invisible, they could have induced it into this situation. That's a way to do it, but they would have done it through somebody else. Dreams, visions, somebody visiting from somewhere else, a traveler. And you're exactly right. Why would be the other necessity of burning everything out? So that that destructive influence does not permeate any more of Israel. Let me give you a grand example of that idea. Look over at Galatians chapter 6. Verse 1. Greg, thank you for bringing that up. That's sweet. I mean, it's not sweet that it happens, but you know what I mean. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Very big deal. Brethren. Saved or unsaved? Saved. Saved people. Paul's right to save people. Brethren. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual. Notice that meaning spiritually mature, you who are wise in the faith, not just in knowledge, but in practice. It says here, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Everybody see that word restore? It's the exact same word that is used for a fisherman that would mend his nets together when they get a hole in it. Okay? So think about that taking place in the body of Christ. So you've got here somebody who is brought up in a trespass. You know that they're sinning. This would be like the first step of of church discipline is the idea of going to that brother in private and restore them, encourage them, bring them to reconciliation. Notice, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself. Now remember, we're talking about spiritually mature believers here. Why? So that you too will not be tempted. Is it possible for a spiritually mature brother or sister in Christ to be tempted when they're dealing with with helping people rectify the sin that others are entertaining in their life? Absolutely it is. 
And it has to be a very careful situation. So why would they be commanded to burn everything and leave no trace of any of that? Just leave it as a, as a monument to wrongdoing so that they're not infected as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same type of idea here about they could be caught up in wrongdoing just as people in the church can. Let's finish this out. Chapter 13, verse 17. Nothing from that which is put under the ban. Everybody see the idea of put under the ban? That's the same word, harem, as the utterly destroyed. To put it under a ban, that God has banned it and it will be done with. Uh, shall cling to your hand. In order that, now notice, here's the reason. In order that the Lord, Yahweh, may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers. Why? Because if you get infected with that sin, you will hinder everything blessing you and God's anger will burn against you. These are pivotal points in life where it's an opportunity to make a right decision. Let me tell you a little autobiographical story. Before I got serious about my relationship with my Lord, I lived at my parents' house. But the reason why I lived at my parents' house at 18 years old is because I had foolishly gotten in my car and drove back to Bowling Green, Kentucky, where we had come from three years earlier, thinking that I could find a place to live there and get a job and I'll just self-sustain myself and all this stuff. And I ended up living in my car for two weeks. It was awesome. Okay? So I come back with my tail between my legs. I'd already run up some bills by not paying some things. My father was gracious enough to pay them in my absence while I was wallowing in stupidity. And, but when I came back, they gave me a place to live on top of their garage. It was kind of my own little one-room deal. And I was coming down one day, and, and, and my dad and I had always had a tense relationship. It's way better now. Uh, but he told me one of the stipulations of living with us is as long as you live with us, you will go to church. And so we, we had, I'd, I'd missed church. I'd been given excuses. I lied, whatever. You know, I mean, just a, a wreck, a mess of a person. And my dad pulled me aside one day and looked at me right in my face. And he said, as long as you live here, you will go to church with us. And so the next day I moved out. <clears throat> Back into your car? No. <laughs> I found an apartment with a friend, and we lived in a horrible part of Evansville. Horrible part of Evansville. But I would much rather live apart from the Lord so I could serve self than to humble myself. It's, all, it's almost always a pride issue. And maybe consider that somebody else might have a better way than what I'm settling for. I think that's so incredible when I look at this. Because, look at verse 18. If you will listen to the voice of Yahweh your Elohim. If you will just listen to what your dad's trying to tell you. Stop for a second. Put down your rights. Put down your pride. Put down yourself. Put down your better way of doing it. Put down your plans that you already got it all figured out. You know, this is how, why we make the joke that at 27 our parents suddenly became smart. If you will just listen to the voice of Yahweh your Elohim, keeping all of his commandments, which I'm commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. If you just do that. If that's, if that's just what you'll do. If you'll just give God that. And I would say that that's the same for today. If we would recognize some of the situations we're in in life, if we would just stop for a moment, just call a spiritual time out, and get alone with God, in his word and say, Father, 
Speak to me. Lead me in paths of righteousness. Let your spirit develop a level ground for me to walk on. Teach me your will. These are all cries that come out of the Psalms. Or, here's always a really good prayer. Help. That's always a great prayer. I will tell you this. I've never found one time in my life where I've ever called on the Lord that I've needed him. That he didn't answer me. That he didn't help me. That he didn't lead me in that way. And do so in a very expedient fashion. Whether it be something as simple as God, I just feel real lethargic about my relationship with the Lord. Dude, he'd light a fire under my rear end out of nowhere that I've never seen in Scripture that just blows my mind. Next thing you know, you can't put me out. Because I just want to be about it all the time. And it becomes insatiable. And he can do that. He can do that. Following his word keeps us from a lot of messy, terrible situations. Now, I direct you back to chapter 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it. Book ended. 1232, 1318. Just listen to God and do what he says. Just follow him. Just esteem his opinion more than your own. Watch what will happen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you've given us your word to make us knowledgeable and to give us something worth living for and living on. Encourage us, Lord, to be faithful. Wherever we find ourselves taking matters into our own hands, Lord, we need to let go. We need to lean into you. Thank you, God, for giving us that relationship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.